There are those times in life where we have a great deal of expectation and anticipation. One of the most common ways we see this is with kids leading up to Christmas. On Christmas Eve, there's that anticipation of what's to come in Christmas. Another way we see this is with planning or preparing for a vacation. You have that anticipation of what's to come and it becomes what we think about and what we plan for and how we spend our time. It's, it's almost as if life itself gets sort of set aside while we look forward to that which is coming. I think another way we see this is with a couple that's just about to get married. I'm sure you've been around couples like that, that are at that point where they're close, and it's almost as if they can't even remember or recognize what's happening everywhere else in life or in their responsibility. I had a time like this of great anticipation. A couple years ago, my boss called me and said, hey, we're going to this dinner and we got an extra ticket. Would you like to come? I was free that night, so I thought, sure, I'll go. And my boss said, great, it's a black tie event, just so you know. And I was, hmm, that's interesting. So out of curiosity, I asked her, how much would the tickets be for this if, if you were just paying to go? And my boss said, well, this dinner is actually a $3,000 plate dinner. Talk about expectation, right? What does a $3,000 dinner taste like? I wonder how often we approach time and the presence of God with that same sense of anticipation, that excitement of, I get to be in the presence of God. This is the place we find David in Psalm 26. It's one where he is so excited, so filled with anticipation at the thought of the presence of God. We follow David now for the last couple of weeks, starting in Psalm 22, where we looked at what do we do when God is silent? And then after that, we looked at Psalm 23, the sufficiency of Christ. In Psalm 24, we stopped and delighted in the sovereignty of God. And last week, we were invited into friendship with God. And today, we're invited into the anticipation and excitement to be in the presence and worship of God. So we'll read the passage and then pray and ask the Lord to use it to inform our hearts. We begin in verse 1 of Psalm 26. Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. 
For your faithful love is before my eyes and I live by your truth. I do not sit with the worthless or associate with the hypocrite. I hate the crowd of evildoers and I do not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence and I go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wonderful works. Lord, I love the house where you dwell, the place where your glory resides. Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed, in whose hands are evil schemes and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity, redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level ground. I will praise the Lord in the assemblies. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word and the example that David is for us. Lord, just help us to have open hearts and open minds and come to you with anticipation and expectation. Lord, we thank you for what you have for us today. Allow the Holy Spirit to teach us and guide us and show us what you would have us see in Psalm 26. In your name, amen. If anybody deserves vindication, that would be David. You see, the, the biblical story of David begins with him as a boy out taking care of his father's sheep. And he's invited one day, he's called to the house where he's told the prophet wants to see you. So he goes and when he gets there, the prophet pours oil on him and says, you're going to be the king of Israel. Not long after that, he gets a summons to the palace where he's invited to play music for the king. Seems like a great jumping off spot. I was told I'm going to be king. I was invited into the palace, so I worked my way up. He gets another break not long after that when the Philistines come against Israel and the army of Israel goes out to meet them. And then comes a big bruiser that we call Goliath. And he invites Israel to send out a man and I'll fight him. And when I kill him, then we win. You're ours. This goes on for 40 days. He comes out and defies the army of God. And one day David has come. He's been sent by his father to bring some food for his brothers. And he hears Goliath and he says, who's going to go out and take this guy on? He's defying God. And everybody's going, not it. So David goes, all right, I'll do it. So he goes to the king and he says, send me in, coach. I got this. King agrees. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, one rock, boom, he's gone. Goliath's gone, not David. And the king is so impressed by this that he brings him into the, the palace in a permanent position where he manages to uh, become more and more successful to the point that the people, so taken with David, that they start singing, 
Well, Saul has killed his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. But Saul starts to get jealous. He knows God has rejected him, but he wants to keep the kingdom for himself and his son. So he decides he's going to kill David. And one day, in a rage, he throws a spear intending to pin David to the wall. But David escapes. That approach didn't really work out, so he tries another. He says to David, hey, I want to give you my daughter to be your wife in exchange for a little thing. you got to bring me the foreskins from a hundred Philistines. And this is not one of those things David can go to them and be like, hey, I want to marry this girl, but her dad requires this, so can you help me out? It's, I'm going to kill you or you're going to kill me. And that's what Saul intends. But David goes and he isn't killed. And he comes back bringing back double of what the king had asked for. And so Saul, in rage, tries to kill him again. Again tries to pin him to the wall. But David escapes. And at this point, Saul just gives up any pretense of, hiding the fact that he's trying to kill David, and puts a standing kill order on David, in a sense. Stations people at his house, and and David is forced to then flee, leaving his position and his home and his wife and his best friend and even his prophet. And the story continues as David is chased by Saul all throughout the desert until one day... Saul happens to come into the cave that David and his men are hiding in. And his men go, hey, this is the opportunity. Let's kill him. And David says, no, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. This happens again not long later when David and an associate of his sneak into Saul's camp and manage to get all the way to the king. And again, David's associate is like, hey, let me run him through right now. And David says, no, I won't touch the Lord's anointed. This pattern continues through David's life where after Saul's death, he has the opportunity to vindicate himself by taking care of Saul's family. But instead of that, he chooses to take care of them in the good sense. He brings them into the palace and takes care of them that way. Later on in David's story, when his own son rebels against him and creates a quasi-civil war, he shows his unwillingness to even kill his own son in that case. And after his son is killed, David grieves the loss of him. This is the attitude and pattern of David. So if anybody deserves vindication, that would be David. So he begins with that in verse 1. Vindicate me, Lord, because I have lived with integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. David knows he has the opportunity to vindicate himself. But 
It matters more to him his integrity before the Lord. And so he appeals to the Lord based on his integrity for that vindication. He says in verse 2, Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For your faithful love is before my eyes, and I live by your truth. So David, in a sense, puts himself on trial and invites the Lord into his heart and his mind to test and judge him. And he does so based on his appeal to the Lord's faithfulness, which he has seen repeatedly throughout his life. And then he, he begins to go into the case for his own integrity, his own character. And this is a theme that you see repeated all throughout the Psalms. This idea of two paths. There's a way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. We see this most clearly laid out in Psalms 1, 1, which starts, How happy is the man who does not follow the advice of the wicked, or take the path of sinners, or join the group of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction, and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside streams of water that bears its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. In contrast to that, the wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not survive the judgment of the sinner's will not be in the community of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. And so David brings, begins with this same theme in verse 4. He says, I do not sit with the worthless or associate with the hypocrite. I hate the crowd of evildoers and I do not sit with the wicked. He points to three different things here. He starts out with this worthless, or another way this is commonly translated is the deceitful. The idea is David is pointing to that which he allows himself to be influenced by. So he says to God, God, I do not insulate my life with those that lead me away from your presence. David knows well that those which we allow ourselves to be influenced by have a great deal of effect on who we are and what we believe. We are all products to some degree of our families and our friends and our faith communities. Recently, I've been spending a lot of time with a friend from seminary who's from Australia. And I've noticed that over the last couple of weeks, there's been some words that have entered into my vocabulary which were never there before. I find myself saying, yeah, I was hanging out with my mate the other day. Or, I'm keen to hang out with you. I mean, that's a silly example, but it just goes to show how much effect those that we allow around ourselves uh, the influence of them that, that is on us. So he says that he does not associate with those who are 
that negative influence on him. He goes on to say, I do not associate with the hypocrite. Or this idea is one who does not act in line with what they believe. This is somebody who claims the name of God, yet refuses the authority of God. I was trying to think of a good illustration of this the other, the other day as I was sitting at a coffee shop. And as I was sitting there, I started hearing this conversation that was happening at a table next to me. It was two guys talking, and one of them, who described himself as a pastor, was telling the other one that the Bible doesn't speak to the idea of sexual immorality. I thought that was kind of weird. And you know that part of your brain that says, yeah, I shouldn't say something? That part of my brain doesn't really work very well. So so I, I uh, leaned over to the guy and I'm like, hey, sorry, I couldn't help, over, uh, couldn't help but overhear your conversation there. And I'm curious what you would define as sexual immorality. And the guy said to me, well, sexual immorality is when you're married and you have an affair. Okay. By that standard, then, uh, I suppose you have to reject a great deal of the Bible. So I invited him uh, to consider a bunch of verses and the... Original word that we associate with the generic sexual immorality. It's a word called porneia in the Greek, and it encompasses everything but God's way, in a sense. And he said, Well, if that's the case, then the Bible's just wrong. All right, then. So here's an example of a guy who, claiming to be a pastor, claiming to be a Christian, a believer in Jesus Christ, is saying, when it comes to what I believe and the Word of God, if we don't agree, then the Bible's wrong. I think this is what David is speaking to. A person like that is an incredible danger to have around you, to have influencing you. And so David says, I don't associate with those kind of people. The last one, he says, I do not sit with the wicked. Another way to say that is I do not sit with the sinful. Now, clearly, David's not talking about actual people. Otherwise, he would sit with no one. (laughs) Including himself. I think what he's speaking to here is he's talking about a comfort level. So a better way to say it is, I do not sit with sin, or I do not allow space in my life where I defend it. He's not talking about sin that you recognize to be sin uh, and are working to 
change through the power of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about those sins that we might be tempted to justify. Oh, I wasn't gossiping. It was a prayer request. Oh, I wasn't lusting. I'm just enjoying the beauty that God created. Oh, I wasn't resentful. It was just competition. I think this is what David's getting at. It's this idea of, I do not carve out room or space in my life for sin that I justify as acceptable behavior. Now, David is not claiming to be perfect, and we see this in verse 6, where he goes on to say, I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, Lord, raising my voice in thanksgiving and telling about your wonderful works. He's pointing to the ritual cleansing and atonement pictures that washing and the altar point to. It is as if David is saying, in fact, the more I pursue God, the more sinful I realize I am, and the more I lean into confession. It's not that David is becoming more sinful. It's that as we get closer to a holy God, we come to recognize how much we are not. And so David is not saying or speaking to perfection or declaring himself to be it. And then he goes on in verse 8. I love the house where you dwell the place where your glory resides. Now at this point, there is no temple. There isn't an actual house. The presence of God was housed in the tabernacle, a tent. But that tabernacle represents the very presence of God as you entered into it And there was the veil separating you from the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant, which had the presence of God seated on the mercy seat. And so David is not speaking to the actual house. He's speaking to the actual presence of God. He's saying, I love your presence, Lord. I want to be in your presence. This becomes sort of a passion for David as he longed to be in the presence of God, he would go into the tabernacle and stand before the veil knowing that the presence of God is right there. Feeling that anticipation and expectation of being close to God. In fact, this leads him to a point of wanting to build a temple for God. When Israel gets to the place where they had peace on all sides and were in a place of prosperity, David is so troubled by the fact that God is still in a tent, he comes to the prophet Nathan at the time and says, I want to build a temple for God because how can I live in a palace? Well, God is in a tent. And Nathan says, do what your heart desires. 
And he says, all right, so I'll build a temple for the Lord. But that night, the Lord speaks to Nathan and he says, no, tell David, you're not building me a house. Your son will build me a house. You're not building me a house. But I will do the opposite. I will build a house for you. I will establish a kingdom that will be eternal. And David is, is excited about this. He goes on. That leads him into worship, if you follow that story. And then he goes about the business of preparing for the temple to be built. He knows he's not going to build it, but he prepares and stores everything that they will need to actually build the temple. After him, his son Solomon does build the temple. And after Solomon dies, then his son Rehoboam becomes king, and he ends up splitting the nation in two. And both these nations, the northern and southern kingdoms, turn away from God. They walk away from God, so God sends them the prophets to call them back to himself. And after calling them and calling them and calling them, he ends up turning them over to exile. But even in that exile, there was always this promise of the one from the line of David that was to come. In fact, the prophets end this way. The very last book of the prophets, in the last few verses, speaks of this promised one. And then in terms of a biblical timeline, there was silence from God for 400 years. And that silence is not broken until we get these words from Luke, the book of Luke. You will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will have no end. So Jesus is that one that God promised to David. Jesus ends up being born and taking on the sins of humanity on himself on the cross. And when he's on the cross... And he cries out, it is finished. There was an earthquake and in the temple itself, the veil which separated the holy of holies is ripped wide open. And no longer anymore was there separation between the presence of God and His people through Jesus Christ. This is the anticipation of David. This is what David looked forward to. This God with us reality. And then in Psalms 26, he finishes with a prayer that he will stay on the path of the righteous and then ends in worship. He says in verse 9, Do not destroy me along with sinners or my life along with men of bloodshed, in whose hands are evil schemes. 
and whose right hands are filled with bribes. But I live with integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on a level ground. I will praise the Lord in the assemblies. And so David begins or ends where he began, which is in worship. My friends, this is an invitation to us. There's really two invitations here. The first is to consider what path we're on. Are we on the path of the wicked, which leads away from the presence of God, away from the glory of God, and away from worship? And that path ultimately leads to destruction. Or the other option is the path of the righteous, which leads to the presence of God and into worship. And this right path or the path of the righteous has three components, it seems, from Psalm 26. The first is To be on that path, we have to accept Jesus as the door by which we enter into God's presence. Jesus is the invitation to something greater than a $3,000 plate dinner. It is, as my former pastor used to always say, God's taking the very best cookies and putting them on the bottom shelf. Freely accessible to anyone and everyone willing to receive it. And if you've made that choice to accept Jesus, the second invitation from Psalm 26 is to set aside or get away from those things that lead you away from the presence and glory of God. And then the last one is then to lean into the presence of God. We have the ability that David did not, where David was confined to step into the presence of God only as far as he could get to that veil. He couldn't go into the Holy of Holies. He could only stand in front of that veil, knowing that the presence of God was on the other side and longing for it. We, on the other hand, live in the reality that that veil has been torn, that through Jesus we have direct access and can boldly walk into the presence of God whenever we desire. And so I think David would encourage us, if he was standing here today, he would say to us, why don't we do that? Why don't we have that anticipation and expectation when we come before the Lord? I'll end with these words from Psalm 86, another prayer of David's. Lord, there is no one like you among the gods. 
and there are no works like yours. Teach me your way, Yahweh, and I will live by your truth. Give me an undivided mind to fear your name. I will praise you with all of my heart, Lord my God, and I will honor your name forever. For your faithful love for me is great. Amen and amen.